welcome to the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Seske, and we have an incredible guest today. Rob Mason of Hypertherm, he's a CFO, has been since August of 2018. And we're gonna talk about a whole myriad of different uh, stories, starting probably with uh, the fact that Rob spent nine years in the Navy after attending the Naval Academy, and has uh, risen through the ranks of finance and served as CFO at both Raytheon and Hypertherm. Rob, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. I'd love to kind of start with a little bit of background about Hypertherm, a little bit about how the last year through COVID has been, what you think 2021 looks like, and maybe then we can start backtracking through uh, through the, all the stories that you have in terms of really forging the way forward for uh, what the modern CFO looks like. Hey, sure. Yeah, I think uh, you know 2020 was a pretty remarkable year. Even just the beginning of it, we we had very a few indications. We have a business sales and distribution in China. It's one of our end markets, and so we knew in the February timeframe our our business was actually shut down for about five or six weeks. So we had some indication, but we had no idea at that time what the impact was going to be across the rest of the world. And as a tail. China was shut down, our offices opened back up, and really we got a very strong rebound in demand. So our first quarter of 2020 was quite strong. The Americas, our other regions, the Americas and Europe were quite strong. So we actually were doing better than we thought through Q1 March. And then of course, overnight, pretty much, we got impacted in in the Americas and in Europe. And so we suffered you know, over a 30% loss in sales almost overnight, April. That caused a whole chain of events inside. And we kind of went into went into our mode. You know, the good thing about us, and we'll talk about it later, is we have a triple bottom line philosophy. So we think about the customer, the associate in our community. And truly really that associate piece that is key. We're an employee-owned company. We all share in the success of the company. And so we're all committed to each other. We have a no layoff philosophy. So a lot of the normal things you do in public company settings and others, we don't do. And we have a very strong passion for that. So we will cut costs. We're, we're very aggressive with that. But in terms of commitment to people, we don't do that. We come together as a team and solve the problem. And that's really what occurred when we hit that, that spot. So we had people stand up from us, stand up from our um, production associates who kept coming in. You know, we safetyed and social distanced the factory. We had a whole team around that. To a lot of my folks, IT, finance, and legal working from home overnight, my IT organization had to respond to that. So it was quite a dramatic response from us internally to, to reset for the new norm. And then there were a lot of things on the capital structure side that we thought about with the treasury group and working with our banks just to make sure we were secure from a cash flow and keeping that going. So it was a pretty amazing experience. And then in June, we started to see our business really come back. We are fortunate much more so than some other businesses because we serve some essential end markets. So we worked very diligently to keep our supply chain open, to make sure we had raw material stock, et cetera, since we sourced from all over the world. So it was really a team effort involved, an exciting experience to be part of a team like Hypertherm and really respond and step up in a time of crisis. And I just completed, um, we do what's called a, a profit sharing discussion that happened 
in uh, December. It's part of our ownership and all the rest. The Couches, who are our founders, Dick Couch believed in sharing, even when he was the sole owner, he believed in sharing the results of the company with the associates. And so we have a very favorable profit sharing program. Of course, this year we were very suspect whether we could do it. But every year since he started in the 70s, started profit sharing in the 70s, we've continued to do it. And this year, actually, we really surprised the organization because our business came back quite strong and we really stepped forward and and shared a lot of that profit back with our associates. So during that discussion, the lead up, it's a big reveal. I kind of told the story and used the analogy of a roller coaster, which is really what we felt like we were in. So that was a lot of fun, but happy to be in 2021. We've learned a lot. That's the thing when you go through crisis, you live through it, you gain new muscles. So I feel very confident. Hopefully we never have to face it again as a company, but we're now prepared more than we were prior. And I think we'd do even better the next time just because of the response and teamwork of the company. I can't emphasize enough how difficult and yet rewarding it can be to engage an entire firm like that, especially driving a culture of of ownership makes these really challenging times feel as though there's a a unified effort. Just for for listeners who don't know, Hypertherm was founded just 50 years ago out of a a small garage and they're industry leaders in in industrial cutting. So just a, a little bit more context there. That's an incredible story to, to have driving into what hopefully will be a return to normality in 2021. Did that driving culture actually, do you think that that drove a lot of the ability to maintain intact and have a kind of a solidarity and vision moving forward or moving through that year? I know it's, it's great, to, great to talk about in, you know, in a cultural and mission-oriented way, but do you think that it drove more practically that kind of cohesive nature of your team? I do, because I think, you know, a a key component of this is that there's a trust in the company with with the associates. There's an understanding that we have this no layoff philosophy so that we don't just try and we try and manage the long term, not the short term. And there's a co-commitment there, which I think is unique. What that does is it gives people security in the fact that we're in this together. The company has to be successful. They are now all shareholders, so um, they they directly benefit in their retirement and everything else from our successes. So just kind of taking that anxiety, there was a lot of anxiety around COVID personally for people and all the rest. One of the ones we were able to take off the table was not, obviously there was anxiety for all of us about the business, the business environment, But there wasn't this unknown of, are they going to do a huge, massive layoff, et cetera. So we're able to focus people on the problem. And just a quick vignette on that, you know, during this period, we certainly, you know, from a finance perspective, cash is king. It is what drives your company and keeps it liquid and allows you to keep operating. Our teams came together, the AR team, our credit team, our sales team. And we really proactively reach out to our customers, our partners that we do business through because we we have uh, different channel partners. And we work with them through this time, one, to know their challenges and restrictions, but two, to make sure we kept those collections going to keep ourselves healthy. And through that period, we were were able to be quite vibrant. We had a couple issues. We were able to kind of isolate those, work with those folks, 
But overall, we stayed within our target metrics and actually outperformed, which really gave me a lot of confidence and gave us more flexibility. So we had taken a, as many companies did, we took a safety draw on our revolver to make sure we had liquidity. I never had to tap it because of the operating part of the business and the way we came together. And everyone was engaged. When someone had to make a call at the right level, they did so. So it was a very good, solid teamwork event that I was just really pleased pleased with. And I think it's all part of that ownership culture. We're all in it together. Whatever you got to do, you, you pull for the team. So very positive from that perspective. Yeah, that's incredible. It, it's always interesting when push comes to shove, how engagement and effective communication can you know, assuage so, much, assuage so many uh, anxieties, as you mentioned, there were so many uh, things running through all of our minds towards the beginning. And you know, the, the biggest driver was uncertainty. You saw it in, in the marketplaces, you saw it in business. And in when it comes into your home, then uh, that's, that's one of the harder ones to deal with, especially as we were all locked down. So, I mean, throughout your career, I'm sure you've been in these sort of pivotal moments where leadership is so key and having, again, solidarity and vision moving forward and really getting buy-in from a group to engage in going into a single direction to get out of a sticky situation. I'm trying to think back to maybe there's a story that you have or maybe an experience from the Navy that gave you some of the some of the molding to allow you to really operate effectively in those high pressure situations or, you know, maybe your time in other CFO roles or even in business school. Is there something that immediately went through your head or was there a moment where you recognized that you needed to take a step back or was it just at this point, is it, is it muscle memory that you've got a stressful situation and you can, you can dive right in? There are a ton of experiences in my background. I would say even my very first moments at the Naval Academy, shape that you're put under immediate stress and pressure. It's a process that you develop over time. In fact, so I won't tell a personal story there, but just a quick vignette. Admiral Stockdale, Medal of Honor winner, he's now passed, but he's a Naval Academy graduate. He was one of the senior POWs in Vietnam and the Hanoi Hilton was quite successful in terms of leading the resistance, if you will. One of the things he always attributed to his success, being able to make it through besides the love of his wife and and all the rest, was his plea beer at the Naval Academy. He said that that shaped him in a way that enabled him to live through that horror. And it's not that the two are parallel, but it's in life, you know, you have these experiences that are building blocks and they give you the tools to then in crisis situations apply. So I would say all my training, I mean, naval aviator training, I was a helicopter pilot off carriers. I had lots of experiences there as well, where you're put into a situation, the team has to react and respond. The way I talk about my naval aviator training is I sort of have a little acronym I came up came up with for the traits to explain to other people, and I call it SET, which is sense of urgency, excellence, teamwork, and tenacity. So the sense of urgency is like when you're in a plane and you have a crew and you're doing military missions, it's a very intense environment. There's a lot coming at you all the time, and you have to be able to make decisions, process information, and make the team successful. Oftentimes, you know, sometimes it's said as a cliche, whatever, but it really is true. 
your life and the life of your crew depends on it. So there's there's just a different experience you get as a naval aviator than you get in other walks of life. And that's trained into you to compartmentalize, solve the problem. There's no end until it's over kind of thing. And excellence is that way too. You demand a lot of yourself. And anytime I flew, we uh, briefed as a team. We flew the mission and we came back and we assessed what we did and how we could get better the next time. We used to call it goods and others. We'd go over. So it's a very critical look. And that was all part of teamwork as well. And then the last thing is tenacity, which is what I started with. When you're in a crisis situation, you're not done until you've tried everything and you don't let yourself think of anything but solving the problem and keeping with it. And I think that's the type of unique training I had as a naval aviator that that helps me in all sorts of situations that most people don't have. I've been told before that I'm very calm and you know, is what are you thinking and stuff like that. And it's because I've been taught to be calm in stressful situations and, and lead. So I'm very thank, thankful for that experience. So I didn't give you a specific story, but just sort of the backdrop of, of what it is and what makes me a little different, I think, than a normal, someone who's come from a more traditional background, if you will. And that calm under pressure must instill so much confidence for set to work for a team, right? To, to have somebody who's got that experience in being able to re- relay that down chain of command, to have a, a calm disposition when things may be uh, a little rocky, I'm sure instills, uh, you know, the confidence that you'd need to be tenacious and to enable that, that mindset. So one of the things I sort of want to talk about is the combination there of your training in the Navy and then moving into having some formal business acumen through business school and kind of creating this profile of a really unique CFO, having both that really unique training again, and then having some of the more traditional financial training as well. Do you think that you fall onto a spectrum of a, of a type of personality of a CFO? Is there a broad spectrum of CFOs? And how would you position yourself or place yourself on that spectrum of you know, trying to create an interesting persona and effective persona for for your role? You know, I always think of myself as a leader first because that was my experience, Naval Academy, and then over nine years in the military. So if you think about it, I had over 13 years with Naval Academy included of intense leadership experience and training. So for example, the first time I showed up in a fleet squadron, one of my first roles was I was put in charge of a 30-person line division. The line division is a division that uh, it's usually the newest people to the, the Navy and the squadron. They launch, recover, and inspect the aircraft. They're the first people to see it and the last people to see it before it's turned to the pilots. So there's a big safety element there. And so being in charge of that right away, that's a, not a normal first job for someone to, to lead 30 people. My very next assignment was in charge of the personnel division, which was of similar size, a little smaller, but basically is the HR department of the Navy. So you go from, you know, maintaining aircraft, teaching people systems and what's important in terms of how the aircraft flies to paperwork, pay, benefits, all stuff that was not in my background or training. And the Navy does that to you. They put you in just when you're comfortable and you've succeeded somewhere, they throw you in a totally different leadership situation and you learn to lead in situations where you're not the expert. Some cases you're the expert, 
some cases you're not the expert and it gives you the ability that's in parallel by the way with being a pilot and flying that was uh at a ground job and a and a flight job two at once so there's this intense training and when you're out at sea of course it's a 24-hour uh, job you do get to sleep but you you handle all those things at once so i think that gives me a little bit different perspective the normal business career get out of college started as as an individual contributor prove yourself through your technical skill and then start getting advanced into leadership situations and i think with the navy it's a professional training organization and it's much more about parallel technical expertise absolutely required but leadership technical expertise is really the focus of the training and so i think that's where I think I differentiate. And then on the finance side, there's a spectrum of people that are really technical and tend to come out of the accounting side. And the other side is more of the, the finance side. And I would say I come out of the finance side. I've had both training, but I'm much more kind of the, I was an economics major in college. So the, the art and the science of economics always appealed to me. And I think it's more that side of operational finance and what does finance tell you about the operations of the business? So I'm much more of an operating CFO, if you will. And those are really, if you look at CFOs, you either have structural technical side or you have the operating side. And I definitely fall into the operating mode with my military experience and then my experience at, at Raytheon. And you need both, but I tend to, to be more the operating side. I think I actually misspoke then because the description that you gave of all the experience in in the military sounds exceptionally applicable to your day-to-day, whether it's being put into a slightly different leadership position, training a group of people, or relying on a separate group of people for when it's not your expertise and you need to talk to somebody in a different division and have, you know, that that cohesion and being able to communicate effectively when you are and are not the, you know, the expert in the room. That's exceptionally interesting to me. Yeah, I think, you know, just to the last comment I'll add is, as I said, I think of myself as a leader first. It's my first passion. And I really enjoy the art and science of finance. So I choose to apply my leadership skills through the function of finance in that lens. But I always do come at things first with the grounding of of leadership. And and that's thanks to my naval training and just the way I'm built. That's incredible. What's really top of mind right now heading into into 2021 and for Hypertherm specifically, is there is there something that's really exciting for you that's maybe three to five years out that may kind of fall in line with the motto of being able to shape you know, possibilities and try to shape all these different industries? And is there something that's exceptionally exciting maybe just this year, moving forward this year and then again, maybe three to five years out from now? Yeah, well, I think I'll start with the long range and then move back. Put the pandemic aside, we have to deal with that and and all the rest. But our long-term view is we're really on the next S-curve of growth at Hypertherm. And that's what's really exciting. We really see the opportunities in our end markets to add value with the types of investments we're making. And we think the skills of our company, and again, bringing together that teamwork of an employee-owned company and all the rest, we really see a lot of opportunity to add value to our customers, our associates, and our community. So we're working very hard at that. 
from my perspective, then as part of the management leadership team, it's how do we help drive the company there? And then I look inside my own sphere of influence, specifically with finance, IT, and legal. And we're under a transformation. We have a, a motto here, or part of our strategy is shaping possibility for our customers, our associates, and our community. And that's what we call the triple bottom line. What that really entails for me inside my function is, okay, Hypertherm has been incredibly successful to where we are here. And all businesses go through transformations. To get to the next level, we have to continue to evolve and advance. And so I'm focusing my team on uh, re-looking at what we've done and where we've come from so that we can leverage the future. And what I mean by that, maybe we'll go more into it a little later, but I'm really looking at the organizational structure. How do you make finance, IT, and legal scalable? How do you make it effective and efficient for where we're going, not where we've been? And what needs to change? And what do we need to be consistent with? Our culture and all that needs to be consistent with our past, but there are certain transformations. So in the next year, we're going through, and we're actually halfway through it, a transformation in finance. And I call it flipping the triangle. But basically, the theory is, if you think of the visual of a triangle, the bottom part is a wide base. And what that is, or what that represents for me is on an individual level, functional level, and a company level, you'll find in most organizations, people spend their time on the transactional side of things, on that lower end of the triangle. And that takes up the 80-20 rule applies here. That basically takes up 80% of people's time. And the insight and action where they're really making meeting, meaty decisions and driving the value of the company is sort of at the point at the top, the 20% or less of their time. And so the transformation we're going through is I call it flipping the triangle. We want to flip that ratio on its head. I want 80%, that's the vision and the goal. I want 80% of the time spent on inside action. How do we drive the business forward? How do we meet our customers? How do we benefit our associates? And, and how do we hit the community with positive impact, being positive on the community environment around us? And so that's a whole transformation effort on the individual level, teaching people how to do that. I'll give you another acronym I use to teach people this. It's basically continuously think through your job and the, the acronym is ESSA and it stands for, and it's in sequence, eliminate, simplify, standardize and automate. And it's a relentless continuous improvement philosophy approach to the, to the world and your job. If on an individual basis, you really look at things and say, Again, we're talking about the bottom part of the triangle. Do I really need to do that? Is it adding value? Okay. If I do still need to do it, then can it be simplified? And then if it can be simplified, well, beyond me, how do I standardize this so the whole company values? And then is this a great opportunity for automation? And so anyway, I, I digress into these details, but this is a massive transformation we're going under. We're partway there. Traditionally, the, the function at Hypertherm has been more back office, accounting, treasury, APAR, payroll, FP&A. FP&A is not back office necessarily, but sort of corporate functions that you have to have as a company standing up. Now, as we go to this next S curve of growth, and we're really trying to 
grow strategically. I'm trying to make that part of the business much more effective and efficient and reallocate resources to the strategic side of things, to putting operational finance people in the field as another muscle to think through where do we need to go to as a business? How do we make trade-offs so that we're on the front lines, if you will, of, of driving hypertherm's growth? So anyway, long-winded, but that that is the massive transformation effort we're going through in the next year, which sets us up for that three to five year growth. It's all aligned with our long-term strategy, make every decision based on that in terms of how we structure our organization. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it also must place such an important emphasis on really the, the team that you build. You're entrusting these individuals with you know, ownership. That's a huge amount of buy-in. And then to flip the, the pyramid, as you said, that's putting a lot of both autonomy and, and power of and enabling, I think, a lot of these individuals to contribute in ways that might be untapped in other places that aren't hypertherm. So I think that really builds, again, a massive emphasis on really how you configure your team. It probably makes uh, the hiring process a little bit more selective, but it sounds like you probably get really top tier individuals who are then have the, you know, who are entrusted to make those kind of insights and, you know, utilize both of your acronyms in terms of, you know, actually making decisions and then using, you know, set to be able to drive how they go about making those decisions. So if you can distill all of that into a single conversation we're having right now, I've got full confidence that uh, you'll be able to flip this, this triangle around, but that's a, that's a really unique vision. Thanks for explaining that. That's very cool. That's underpinned by my experience. I can tell you a Navy story here as a pilot, early aircraft commander, where, where all this comes in. There's multiple lessons from this one. I'll tell you quickly, the flight deck of a Navy aircraft carrier is quite, it's the most dangerous place on earth to work. I think dangerous jobs, that was the one that they, micro, et cetera, highlighted. Anyway, it's a very intense environment as well. Well, as a helicopter pilot, the helicopter is the first one to take off and the last one to land. What that means is we're keeping the rest of the naval aviators from getting off the deck of the carrier. So when you have to do flight operations, it's pretty intense. You got to get the helicopter off the deck. Well, this one time, sometimes we have maintainers that help maintain our aircraft and to recognize them, we will take them flying on a, on a mission with us. So I had uh, my co-pilot, two crew members, and a fairly junior maintainer join the aircraft. We did the pre-brief and I talked about how important it is. Hey, if you see something and, and we go through a whole brief, usually people get a little panicked because we talk about emergencies, what your responsibility is, how you do it, much more involved sort of on steroids, what they do in the airlines and everyone falls asleep in that. These are pretty intense. Well, aircraft is segmented in such a way with all the equipment inside that the crew in the back don't all necessarily sit in the same place or, or get access to each other in certain configurations. Anyway, we were on the flight deck starting up. I have two F-18s on the uh, cats behind me turning up and the air boss was talking to me in, in nice sort of terms through the radio all during my pre-flight and getting ready to go because we're on a, we're on a schedule Naval aviators, we take a lot of pride in being able to get off the aircraft carrier pretty quickly and get successive aircraft off the carrier. Anyway, during a startup routine, I had a caution light come on. And for a pilot, you have to make snap decisions. 
is a caution light doesn't necessarily ground the aircraft. So I've got a couple of choices. Caution light comes on, you try and troubleshoot. Is it real? Is it not real? Does it impact my ability to fly the aircraft and safety, et cetera, et cetera? Have all this going on. And part of my thing was to go back to my crew and say, hey, here it is, because the specific caution light we had could be benign and we could fly. It was a system we didn't necessarily need. But there is, because you know the systems and all the rest, there is, if this is a catastrophic failure of that system, which the light's the same either way, could actually impact the transmission. And that is uh, when the transitions transmission stops turning in a helicopter, the blades stop turning, and you instantly crash, stop flying, and uh, you probably all perish. So it can lead to a fairly critical thing. And it's up to the pilot under intense pressure and scrutiny to figure out, is this a benign thing where I can take off, troubleshoot in the air and come back or not? You try and rely on your crew. That's that's the meaning of this whole story is that you want everyone talking. And I went around, everyone said, hey, can you tell, hey, check the pump. Can you see anything? Well, the person that could see the pump was the maintainer who was new to the aircraft, pretty junior, and he didn't say anything. The rest of the crew couldn't see anything. So we took off, didn't fix it in the air. Once all the jets came off, I declared emergency, came back and landed. When we got everyone out, shut the aircraft down, that maintainer was covered with hydraulic fluid. Oh, my gosh. So the pump that I was worried about had completely failed. It was the bad situation. Now it didn't stop the transmission, obviously. But the one person in the right position to give the critical information didn't give it for whatever reason. And probably because intimidated, shocked, thinking, hey, these guys are setting me up or something, right? Because you know sometimes you play jokes with people. I can't propose to know, but the learning from that experience for me, and there's lots of other ones around flying and emergencies, is that what I would tell the audience is my key belief is that everyone is critical. I'm a big team person. I was a hockey player, and I believe in team first. And so my job as leader and aircraft commander in that situation, and my job as CFO now is to make sure I'm getting input from everybody at the right time, at the right spot, to empower them to make the decisions. The people in the right position to make the decision, who have the right information, I want to make sure they're able to do that. And that's really what that story is about. One, it's about communication, make sure that everyone is feeling included, that it's a leader's responsibility to break down any barriers and make sure they're getting the best out of the people. And so that's a core philosophy of mine. And I take a little time telling you that story because it was burned into me early on. And it's just a core belief of mine. It's probably something that people don't think of as military. You know, when they think of the stereotypical military leader, they think of what they see on the war movies and videos. And it's really much different than that. For me, it's all about how do I engage my team? So the reason I went into this long story and my point was your point about shaping your team. I believe very much about investing in the team you have, figuring out what gaps there are, then and then bringing those gaps to bear. But if I can just get the best out of each individual person, we're going to be much better off as an additive thing than if I get the one superstar. And that's where I talk, that's where I really think about the strength of the team 
is empowering the individual, giving them the right alignment and helping them make decisions and feel free to input. Then as a team, we'll come to a better answer than we will as individuals. And that one key person in the one spot, making sure that they're willing and able to speak up. So I go through those acronyms and things like that to actually empower the individual to say, oh, wait a minute, he wants my ideas. He wants my thoughts. He's given me a methodology to think through this. And usually that energizes people because they know exactly what's wrong with their job. They know exactly why it's so dumb. I do this same, I had this example in Raytheon. Every Monday morning, I have to come in and I have to download data to five different spreadsheets because I'm making it up, right? Because I overdo Excel. And then I've got to put all that into, and then I have to manipulate all that data and a, a day and a half later, so you know, Tuesday afternoon, I can finally look at what that data is telling me. Well, that's all about ESSA, right? And only that person knows that. I don't have that perspective because I'm not doing that job every day and my leadership team does. And it's only that person that knows how painful that transactional task is that can fix the problem. And I want all my team to know that I desperately want to fix those problems for you. That's my job as your leader. But you have to tell me what those things are because I'm not all knowing. I can't know what that is. Anyway, long story, but that's how I think about leadership and engaging my team and, and getting them involved. We could have this conversation for hours, but what incredible insights. Thanks so much for sharing the, the personal stories and all the acronyms. And I just can't think of a, a higher note that we could possibly end on. But I can't thank you enough for joining the, the Modern CFO podcast. And just thank you so much for all of your time and sharing these great insights. I know that it'll be massively valuable to all the listeners. And we look forward to circling back soon and, and checking back in with you and the Hypertherm team and later in this year to come. But uh, just thank you so much again for all of your time. Great. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to talk to you. Likewise.